Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This session of Grand Rounds Nation is provided by the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians, or ACOFP. Speaking is Dr. Robert Hasty on the subject of advancements in stroke prevention. I'm going to talk to you today about a topic that I think is extraordinarily important to the family physician, a topic that I think is something that's probably the most exciting field in medicine today and something that's changing more than almost anything I could imagine in the field of medicine, particularly to the family physician. And my goal is for you to get out today some of the old stuff, but more importantly, some of the new management uh, technologies and the new thoughts and the new knowledges that are approaching us when we talk about atrial fibrillation. Everyone in this room has a homework assignment. Your homework assignment is to read the chess guidelines, the executive guidelines that takes you like an hour. And the reason why I say this is not only is it so important to my talk when we talk about the management of antithrombotic therapy relating to atrial fibrillation, but even more important to all these other advances and all the changes in, in venous thromboembolic disease, et cetera. And so I think that every family physician should read this. It comes out every three years, and I really think that, uh, that each of you should take some time to do it. And I'll be basing a lot of my talks based upon that as well as the American College of Cardiology stroke guidelines, or I'm sorry, atrial fibrillation guidelines. I think most of us in here appreciate what a major challenge atrial fibrillation is, and this is the reason why. We're talking about stroke, and it's arguably the third leading cause of death in the United States. And if you actually look at stroke distribution, we're talking about both hemorrhagic as well as ischemic stroke. And I can argue that atrial fibrillation is involved with the whole piece of the pie. Not only uh, acute ischemic stroke, which we'll talk quite a bit about, but as well as hemorrhagic stroke, particularly with our anticoagulants and some of the new things that we're, uh, we're seeing out there. We also do know that overall, if you look at that huge pile of numbers out there, but the actual patients that actually have acute ischemic stroke, 18% of those have that from atrial fibrillation, and that's the reason why we're here today. And of course, this is a problem uh, as we age. The older you are, the more likely you are to have atrial fibrillation. I think everybody in here recognizes the fact that we have this this aging society, and this is like job security for everybody in this room. And we're going to have to take care of more and more patients every single year with atrial fibrillation. And I will tell you, it's getting a lot easier. For those of you in this room that are 40 years of age or older, you have a one in four chance of developing atrial fibrillation in your lifetime. One in four chance. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about rate control versus rhythm control, but suffice it to say, we spent so much of our time trying to get patients into sinus rhythm. You know, this was, you know, something that plagued my uh, residency training, where, you know, we were just trying to put everybody into sinus rhythm, and I still see folks doing this quite a bit. But we know the evidence has been out for like 10 years now, and I, th you know, and I won't belabor this too much, but if you look at the AFFIRMED trial, it clearly shows that there seems to be no benefit of focusing on keep trying to get patients in sinus rhythm all the time. 
Yes, there are patients that clearly do benefit, be it they can't tolerate anticoagulants or can't take anticoagulants, and we'll discuss some of those reasons. But for the most part, most patients should probably be rate control. And you say, well, why is that? Well, I can tell you that rate versus rhythm control overall in most perspectives has very, very similar outcome rates. And the AFFIRM trial was the first to show this. But I would make the argument, you know, we live in a system. We have to decrease utilization. You know, it's part of the core competencies, part of our medical education that we have to, to focus on decreasing utilization. And you have something that costs a fortune trying to get patients back into sinus rhythm versus something that's relatively inexpensive, uh, keeping them rate controlled. And I think that's where we're headed. That's where we need to be for most patients. Focus on rate control and preventing the stroke. So this is probably new information for some people in the room. You probably remember how we used to focus on 80 as the magic number for patients with atrial fibrillation. You know, let's try to get their rate less than 80. The new number is 110. And the data actually comes from the RACE2 trial. And the RACE2 trial clearly showed that there was non-inferiority of keeping those patients less than 110 as your goal less, compared to less than 80. And I can tell you, it's a lot easier to get them less than 110 than it is to try to get them down to less than 80. You know, think about all those patients that we've had over the years where we had those orthostatic syncopes because we pushed the beta blockers too much or negative chronotropes that we've used. And this makes life so much easier. In fact, the RACE2 trial looked not only at stroke, but every single one of those components, and there seems to be no outlier there. So I can clearly say the atrial fibrillation guideline of less than 110, that's the magic number. So your atrial fibrillation patients or patients with atrial fibrillation, 110 is the magic number, recommended by the American College of Cardiology, clearly has the evidence behind it, RACE2 trial being the best of it. So 110 is the magic number. The next medication I want to, or I want to talk about a medication that I think most of you um, have heard about before. Uh, this medication, the, the, the trade name is Multec, but I'm going to talk about the generic name, which is Dronetodrome. Now, this is a drug that's been out for a few years now, and I can tell you when it first came out, these drug reps were courting my residents and our cardiology fellows on a daily basis. I mean, they were really trying to, to get them in the practice of using uh, this medication. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think anybody in this room should probably ever prescribe this medication. I'll tell you why. And I, you know, I don't know if they're a, spe they're a sponsor or not, but I can tell you why. It's just like amiodarone, but it has no iodine moiety. And this is the reason why people jumped on board. They said, oh, great, we don't have to worry about all those thyroid effects associated with the, the iodine, the Wolf-Chaikoff effect, and all this other stuff. So it really sounded pretty good. And there was one study called the Athena trial, which actually decreased hospitalizations in patients with paroxysmal, not permanent, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation decreased hospitalizations. And that's part of the reason why it got FDA approval in the United States. But we knew at the time, and we know now, that you couldn't use it in patients with class 4 heart failure or a recent decompensation. And so here's some of the evidence behind it. We now know, and I'll show you the FDA warning that came out a couple of months ago, that this medication should never be used in a patient with permanent atrial fibrillation defined by AFib lasting at least three months. And if you look at the amount of deaths 
and strokes compared to placebo, a statistic increase risk of dying and strokes in patients with permanent atrial fibrillation. So dronadarone, I certainly would not recommend to put on patients with permanent atrial fibrillation. We also know from the Andromeda study that you know, patients with severe heart failure, you increase mortality after dronadarone. And if you look, it was statistically significant uh, compared to placebo in the Andromeda trial. And of course, the FDA was very good about picking uh, some of this up, and they came out with this FDA warning, which I'm sure many of you probably either got the email or uh, the Dear Doctor letter or, or whatever, and that clearly the FDA does not want you to use this in permanent atrial fibrillation and certainly not in class 4 or severe heart failure with recent de- decompensation. Some folks, and you'll see cardiologists say that, well, why not just put it on patients with heart failure, right? With stage one or or class one or class two heart failure. And I'll make the argument that what do those folks frequently go on to develop? Class four, decompensation, and permanent atrial fibrillation is fairly common. So one medication I think that we should probably take out of our arsenal, especially when we're talking about atrial fibrillation, is dronadarone, and you know, here's the evidence. Let's switch over to talk about antithrombotic therapy. Now, I think most of you were really excited a few years ago with the concept of possibly replacing warfarin with a combination of two antiplatelet drugs. I know when, I, when this was being studied, I was really excited, and the preliminary data actually sounded fairly positive, and the idea would be to take clopidogrel, which is a thionopyridine antiplatelet agent plus aspirin, which all of us know fairly well, versus warfarin, and the active W study actually looked at this, and if you look at vascular events, clearly statistically significant reduction in vascular events in warfarin as compared to clopidogrel plus aspirin. No question about it, uh, warfarin's better. So, The American College of Cardiology in their 2011 guidelines came out and said, you know, clopidogrel plus aspirin, it's reasonable if warfarin's contraindicated or the patient's not adherent. And I bring this up because I think this is a place where I think a lot of folks can improve. Because I see folks out there in the community, and, you know, they're either never going to come in for their INR or they have contraindications to taking warfarin, and so people just put them on 325 aspirin. You know, I can tell you, according to the American College of Cardiology, it is reasonable, and it does appear from the published data that it seems to be probably superior to aspirin alone uh, for those high-risk patients or intermediate-risk patients with atrial fibrillation who are going to be non-adherent to warfarin. Now, we'll talk about some of the novel agents here in a few minutes because I think that changes some of the equation. But the idea of clopidogrel plus aspirin for atrial fibrillation is not a dead topic. Now, the other area, and I know that many of you in this room practice hospital medicines and and take care of patients with an acute ischemic stroke. This is an area that I think that I probably can't emphasize enough. And this is an area that um, we probably don't do as good as we can. I'm not talking about this group. I'm talking about nationally. We do know that in patients with an acute ischemic stroke, they should not be getting full-dose anticoagulations within the first 24 hours. In acute ischemic stroke, in the first 24 hours of presentation, we should not be giving these folks full-dose anticoagulants. And what's one of the worst things that can happen if you have a patient with an acute ischemic stroke? Hemorrhagic conversion, right? I heard it. heard a lot of people saying it. 
That's one of the worst outcomes. We have data for years now. This, has been a, this is a grade 1B recommendation that we should not be giving folks full-dose anticoagulants because, number one, it doesn't really seem to make that much of a difference in the stroke, but you have this huge conversion over to hemorrhagic conversion. And part of the reason is that you have this penumbra. You have an acute ischemic stroke, you have this penumbra. It's, you know, penumbra is Latin for, this, uh, for umbrella, right? So you have this umbrella area around uh, the, the area of infarct where it's viable tissue. And it's really friable, especially the area of, of, of infarct is very friable. You give them stroke, or you give them um, uh, anticoagulants, and you have that hemorrhagic conversion, it really changes the, the, the pathway. And by the way, that's what happened to Ariel Sharon. You know, you remember Ariel Sharon, acute ischemic stroke? The whole world criticized all of his docs for acutely putting the patient on uh, anoxaparin, you know, made AP news and stuff, and he had uh, hemorrhagic conversion of his uh, stroke and, you know, ultimately, you know, had long-term, uh, long-term acute care needs and uh, ended up subsequently dying. So the bottom line is don't use it, and this is true of atrial fibrillation. Now, when's the magic number? Is it 24 hours? Well, it's definitely more than 24 hours. So if they come in with atrial fibrillation with an acute ischemic stroke, the guidelines clearly say 24 hours is the magic number. You put them on antiplatelets, put them on their aspirin when they come in uh, 24 hours later, then you put them over. And by the way, how long does it take for atrial fibrillation to cause a clot in the left atrium? So if you have a patient with atrial fibrillation, you know, blood just not moving there in the left atrium, how long does that stasis need to occur prior to causing a clot? 48 hours, right? We know that's the magic number. And so 24 hours, you know, when you can decrease the chance of a hemorrhagic conversion of a stroke is a pretty good benefit in my risk-benefit pathway. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Browns Nation after this short break. <laughs> 